Hello, 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 everybody, and welcome to another episode of... Beneath the Screen of the Ultra Critics. Just me and Thad today, so I'm sorry if you came in expecting more people. Yeah, I mean, if if you if you uh, are absolutely loving us, like dragging people in who are not us, then too bad. <laughs> it's uh, just us. We are so, the just us league today. <laughs> what? I don't know. Just go. Just ignore me. <laughs> awesome. That's uh, usually the plan. Um. So a uh, couple of news bits before we start up. Um, first and foremost, um, at the time of this recording, the new camera test for Joaquin Phoenix's Joker has come out, <sighs> and everyone seems to be having opinions about how the movie's going to be now, and I'm like, it's a, it's a camera test. <sighs> it means literally nothing. Tom I mean, Phillips I... is still directing this, so I'm not really hopeful. I mean, I, I don't, no, I mean, I was never hopeful uh i as someone who most of my opinions about the world uh start with opinions about batman uh <laughs> and yeah no we don't we don't need a solo joker movie like there there's enough wrong in the world i think we're doing okay in that regard well i know a lot of people are like you know we just want to see something different cuz dc's done such a horrible job on you know if dc did something that was just normal that would be a good <laughs> starting bar before they start doing things that are different because that's kind of what got him into this place to begin with yeah like wonder woman was great specifically because they somehow accidentally made a wonder woman movie like i guess nobody told Nobody told Patty Jenkins that they were supposed to shit all over themselves, like that that was their brand. I'm well, sorry, I should, I should that, uh, she, uh, bring she, she filmed in, like, out of country, and the studio had really nothing to do with her. Yeah, uh, so apparently they need to keep a, a tighter rein on that, otherwise people are going to make the movies that the fans want to see, like that, and <laughs> who knows where that could lead? That could lead to, like, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the clearly just completely slipshod nonsense. That's a possibility. <laughs> um, but outside of that, I, I, I just want to emphasize this is a screen test, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, it, 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 is the, it is the most non-story. Like, I I feel like people just want to, like, have something about DC Comics movies to complain about. It's like, they'll give it to you. Just wait. You don't have to jump the gun. Well, <laughs> I even remember going, you know, this is akin to putting squiggly lines and shapes on a piece of paper going, this is the sketch for the poster we'll have. It doesn't, it's the absolute <laughs> bit of minimum. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is the, it's, you know, a consequence of how media saturated and how sort of constant stream of information things are. Uh, I, I'm like, uh, to, to give like a, a sort of benefit of the doubt, like, if we saw early in this stage of the process, like stuff from uh, from Tim Burton's Batman, people would have complained. And people did complain. People thought Michael Keaton would be a bad Batman because we live in a terrible world. Stupid people uh, have clearly never seen Batman, <laughs> <laughs> right? But uh, yeah, so it's ugh, like it's it's. It, I think it's a great example of a non-story. <laughs> uh, what is an actual story? is Chloe Zhao has been tapped by Marvel to direct The Eternals. Uh, Which, Chloe, 
Claude uh, I... directed an indie movie called The Writer, which mm. was really sort of popular if you are into the indie circuit. And what's fascinating is the fact that you can tell by name Chloe Zhao, she's an Asian woman, and she got mm. she made a really, really low-budget indie movie. Mm. And then one of the biggest studios in the country, in the world, was like, hey, you want to make one of our movies? Which, Which doesn't happen for women. Yeah, I, I'm super curious as to... Because, like, The Eternals is... Uh, it's up there with Guardians in the movie out of this um, thing. And Guardians turned out real well. Well, uh, also, it should be noted that... So... Chloe oh, no, Zhao, the writer, came out, like, four months ago. Hmm. Like, this is a very recent... Like, her first movie just happened. Yeah. Whereas, I think what's really kind of fascinating, even for male directors, it's like the movie, and then there's like maybe three or four months of Yeah, like uh, Marvel's Marvel's being like super proactive. <laughs> I was like, all right. And, and I mean, I'm 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 tentatively curious to see. I'm I'm hoping like uh, it's it seems like. There have been very few things that that Marvel Studios have done that have gone in like Inhumans direction. So right. that's that's good. Uh, we're hoping that this will be continuing in that trend of like picking interesting people who are going to do some like strong creative stuff, uh, like Ryan Coogler, Taika Waititi, uh, James Gunn. Until recently, like their their best movies have followed this similar sort of track of like right. snapping people up. So. Well, uh, you know hopeful. Tentatively of, hopeful. Do you know what the plot of the writer is? Uh, no, I don't. It's about, I, a, uh, it's about we, a rodeo we don't, guy. We don't, I, I, don't, I don't know if you remember this, Jeremiah, but I live in the Midwest. We don't, we don't have indie movies here. Okay, the writer <laughs> barely came out here, too. <laughs> it's, it was a festival movie more than anything. Yeah, like festival movies, will, they'll, they'll probably trickle down to the rest of us in like a year or so. It's about a rodeo guy who gets told that if he ride, if he falls down one more time because he has so many concussions, he'll get brain damage or something oh, like wow. that. And it's just like a really slow, methodical pace sort of like character study. And I'm just like, I love that you guys watch that. It's like, that's the lady we're going to get to direct our internals movie. Oh, that's 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 fantastic. <laughs> I gotta... Uh, I'm I am even more excited about this now. That's I, I will watch a rodeo movie. I'm I'm not above that. <laughs> all right, so uh, that's all the news we have for right now. Yeah, what passes for news? Uh, really, just <laughs> us mocking. Um, uh, really, just ta- us talking about comic book movies. Like, is all that was <laughs> like ones that won't be out for years. <laughs> oh, many many years. Um, uh, so today's topic is. Basically, critical thinking and when uh, discussion of movies, and I say yeah, this how, not to be condescending. How how to read movies? Right. Well, and I think that's like you really do. It is an a, sort of essence of reading a movie because I well I, as I, uh, I, as someone who has spent far too much time in grad school, um, I I think this is one of those things where I I, I think it's. It's really useful, at least in in the stuff that I was studying, that we would often talk about texts as like we would we would use the word text a lot, and we would use it for any form of media, like uh, a movie being a text that you look at, and uh, and I think that's that's in some ways a good way of like 
shifting how we talk about it because when we talk about watching movies when we like even just the the very like construction of saying oh let's let's i'm, I'm gonna watch this movie or i i like to watch movies like watch is a very passive concept at least colloquially right. like we think about we just sit down we watch a movie and and that that's the entire interaction and yeah i i, I feel like I don't know. It's a weird tangent to jump in immediately and derail the conversation. But that talking about movies as text and talking about sort of reading a movie is in some ways, I think, a a more useful way to think about it uh, than just watching, because it implies a little bit more like digging or or unpacking or work or whatever. I agree to some to some extent. I, I, I created with this looking at a movie, which I think most people do, and then there's watching a movie. Ooh, I like that. That's a good that's a good juxtaposition too. Uh, because I there's a lot of things that and this is like as a critic or just as someone who watches movies and start thinking about movies, mm. you you basically have to you either start training yourself, but it's not like an actual sort of like you sit down and start training yourself. It's just something that happens over yeah. time, and you just sort of adjust the way you think about things. Yeah, you, um, you build the habits, and you, you train yourself to, like, notice and think about different things over time. And um, we've gone into this a little bit, but uh, we talked about Sidney LeMay and how, like, a lot of his stuff you don't see the first time or even mm. the second time, and that's by design. And that's, by most directors' design, you'll see, like, a lot of the stylistic elements. Mm. But, like, the deeper stuff more than likely won't come until second or third viewings. And that's because most movies are made to be watched more than once. Not saying you don't get the majority of it the first time. Most If a movie doesn't give you the basis of what it's trying to do the first time, it's probably not a good movie. Yeah. I mean, I mean, also I would say like, it's, it's an interesting kind of double duty because I, I think, yeah, I, I agree. Like most movies are made to be watched more than once ideally, but, uh, there's also, I feel like uh, I, I, am I don't know how many people rewatch a lot of movies. In fact, every time this topic seems to come up in like, uh, whenever I'm crouching outside of someone's house, like listening in on their private conversations, like a lot of other people don't seem <laughs> to rewatch, mo- or at least I think Netflix has changed this. But like years ago, people, uh, I remember a lot more people being surprised when I would tell them that I rewatch like a lot of movies. I'm uh, not something. all, but like there are particular ones that I will watch like a ridiculous amount of times, regardless of length. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. I think Netflix has hurt this even more because more, oh, you more, more people don't rewatch movies because there's so many. Oh, because of the because of just like queuing up the next thing and moving right. on. Queuing up the next thing and also, um, and even now, um, like last weekend or two weekends ago, you know how many movies opened in L.A. alone? How many? Forty. Oof. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of movies and people have this thing if they want to see them all. It's like the Pokemon thing. They have to watch them all. I'm like, awesome, but unless you like, like retain anything from watching all of them, it doesn't really do yeah. any good. Like if, like if the average movies are on like an hour and a half, two hours, that's like that's a that's a lot. <laughs> You're you don't have time. <laughs> well, I remember um, when I worked at Target. One of the guys I knew was like, I don't listen to critics because I want to make up my own mind. I'll just see the movie if I want to. Yeah, I think that's a fairly common sentiment. That's a fairly common sentiment, but the critic isn't trying to tell you what to think. He's trying to save you time and money. 
Yeah. Well, the the critic, uh, it, it's. I feel like it's one of those things. God, I keep thinking about a lot of grad school shit today. But one of those things I didn't, uh, I didn't think about until I was pretty deep into like college, is what uh, what an abstract is for in a research paper. Because I, I hated that form of writing. I don't like being concise. I would pref- I would prefer to say in ten pages what I could have said in one. But um, <laughs> but the the point of an abstract is to set is to to give people an idea of whether or not they need to read this article for their own research or for their own information or whatever. Just like give the brief blurb. This is what we're doing here, so that someone can look at it and say, "Oh, I, I should read the whole thing," or uh, "or no, I should move on." Like the the critic's job is that, but with whatever medium they they criticize, uh, or at least the in terms of the popular press version of a critic, not necessarily the. Uh, like deep dive sort of like academic criticism, whatever. Right. Too many similar words. Well, no, um, I remember listening to a podcast with Bibiani and Seibold, and apparently Whitney Seibold wrote a review, and a lot of people got angry at it. And then, <laughs> but like, we're going to go see this anyway. And, okay. Well, no, and uh, Bibiani's like, well, technically that is the point of a review. He got an emotion out of you. Yeah. And he described it in such a way that you still want to see it. He was well, this, telling you he just didn't like it. <laughs> I mean, this this to me goes back to God, we're we're going to end up just largely talking about uh, criticism at its place again. But uh, although that could never be talked about enough, really, because yeah, I, think, I feel like a lot of people have a weirdly adversarial uh, and uh, a kind of uh, I'm going to go with uh, backwards pragmatic idea of how to interact with criticism because <laughs> you like if if I if I chose to follow like one critic. Critic X, and I hated and disagreed with them completely all the time. But if I read them consistently and understood how their opinion lined up with mine, I could still find that information useful. Right. Like, oh, oh, they hated this and this and this about that movie, but I like those things, so I should see it. Not like adversarially, just I understand this person and their perspective, and so it tells me think or like or dislike about a movie. You don't have to agree with someone 100%. It's not an objective thing. Right. Uh, sorry. Rant. Right, <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> uh, but really in large part, I want to skip ahead. We'll come back to um, that first part. But yeah, yeah, talk yeah. about essentially the underpinning of all this is you have to understand what the movie's trying to do. Yeah, Ste- yeah. What, what is the... Step- is trying to get inside the movie's head. Where sometimes it's really easy, and sometimes it's hard, and that can be part of the joy. Like Annihilation. I yeah. have no idea what's going on with that movie. I love that movie. <laughs> yeah, I keep meaning to read the books that's based on, but, uh, meh. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. what were you getting ready to say? Oh no! I was I was gonna yeah I I, th- I feel like science fiction stuff uh, of that that stripe is is real good for that kind of obnoxious uh, question hanging not not obnoxious I shouldn't I shouldn't be glib about it because I mean it's <laughs> it's meant to be uncertain right uh, and and too much a lot of media is approached like it's a puzzle with a solution you have to find exactly. And like you're saying, like understanding that that's not what all movies are trying to be, and that like you know, I I remember I, Christopher Nolan movies are terrible about this. Not necessarily <laughs> the movies themselves, right. but let's say certain audiences' responses to them. Because every now and then you'll still you'll still see like 
articles and stuff online pop up about oh the like so and so like says what the real meaning of the end of inception is or the real meaning of the end of like the dark knight rises well the real meaning is that i watched this movie and now i can think about it <laughs> there's an entire youtube channel dedicated to telling you the real meaning of the ending of every movie even to movies where the ending doesn't need to be explained it's pretty... <laughs> <laughs> movies where it's like the the real meaning of the ending of ghostbusters i well, kid that, you not I mean... that's, there's a youtube channel that's just like that i'm just like that it's it's the hell of the clock on its walls how do you need it to be explained what happened at the end i told you <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, uh, YouTube like... is a uh, YouTube is a horrible place that I spend all of my time. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a what you just brought up is what I'm essentially trying to say. It's like understanding when the movie's trying to be coy, when the movie's trying to be straightforward, and mm. when an unanswered question is meant to be unanswered. Um, yeah, I, I mean my. Also, uh, uh, go, go ahead. Oh, no, no, go ahead. I was I was going to tangent. Go you go ahead. <laughs> I think also there's a when you um I think now more than ever we have a much more an audience with a much more diverse taste in what they watch. At mm. the same time when they go to the movies they tend to see only the big temple movies on the big screen. And yeah, and a lot of other things are sort of put in the I'm going to wait till it's on Netflix. Right, I'll stream sort of it. Mind space. Um, and yeah. a lot of the temple movies don't have a lot of things going on on the edges. And so when you watch no. the small movies, you <laughs> tend not to watch the things on the edges. And to some degree, you are conditioning yourself to ignore the size of the fame, but you shouldn't because that's what interesting stuff is as well. Mm. Intentionally put there, sometimes, sometimes not. But um, yeah. you have to be able to understand that when you watch a movie that's not a mainstream movie, well, you also have to mm. figure out what movie you're watching. If it is a mainstream movie, then more than likely it's going to behave a certain way because all Hollywood movies behave a certain way. There's more likely going to be a 3 s structure. And if you've seen enough superhero movies, the last 30 minutes is going to be a fight <laughs> and a resolution and a, a cliffhanger. Yeah. And when you see a big-budget movie that doesn't do that, well, then you're watching a movie that's different. And it's not an indie movie, but it could just be something like uh, Guardians or something like Thor, but even then, like, when you watch something like Black Panther that hits all those beats, but does something within those beats that's fascinating. Yeah. Because I know a lot of people, there's a huge divide between people who who aren't critics and people who are. The critics love Black Panther. Most people just kind of like it. And Really? Like, I, I, I thought it had a, a fairly positive, popular response as well as critical. Uh, then again, I, I have trouble paying attention to other people sometimes. Right. Um, like, there is a positive response, but there's also a very large sort of mediocre response. Hmm. And uh, part of that is because while Black... Because like, it's just like every Marvel movie. I'm like, it is, but it's the best time. Because <laughs> it definitely right, like does really well and never pretends to be anything other than a Marvel movie. Right, there, there is such a thing there is such a thing as doing the expected exceptionally well. And exactly. that's not and that isn't valueless. Um I remember reading something, Pauline Kale's a critic, uh, mm-hmm. from the seventies. And she uh, won one year for her best film of the year, she put uh Stanley Donnan's Charade, which is a movie with Cary Grant, uh Audrey Hepburn and Walter Matthau, Lee Marvin, George Kennedy. And I mean this in the best way. It's a nothing movie. Mm. <laughs> it, it is literally her Audrey Hepburn husband dies 
and she runs into Cary Grant at a hotel, and he seduces her, and next thing you know, wacky hijinks ensue as apparently she has the secrets to some stolen looters, and now everyone's trying to catch her, and Cary uh-huh. Grant is trying to help. Yeah, it's a huge thing. There's no real deep underlining meaning. It's just a fun, fluff movie. And she put it as her best movie of the year, and everyone's like, how could you? She's like, it's the best fluff I've seen all year. Well, Pauline Kael's the one with that famous quote about uh, if we can't appreciate great trash, then how can we appreciate like movies at all or something right. like that, right? Yeah, like I'm, I'm much... heavily uh, paraphrasing. Right, no, but that's very much it. Like, so when people get looking look at me askance when I say Patterson 2 is one of the best movies of the year, I'm like, what? It's the best movie. It's the kids' movie, but it's like the best kids' movie you'll see in like at least two or three years. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, that that idea. I mean, I feel like also a lot of this is is sort of working uh, or struggling against the the kind of like hierarchy of what movies are supposed to be since there's like big serious dramas and then somewhere below that there's like blockbuster movies and then somewhere below that there's like romantic comedies and other just like meh. And then somewhere below that is like indie stuff, unless the indie stuff somehow jumps the rest up into the Oscar territory. Like it's uh, like there, there's this sort of I don't know. I, I feel like there is a very hierarchical social exp- like idea of of what movies like quote unquote deserve like certain yeah. respect or attention or whatever. And the idea of something that's just sort of like a kids movie or a romantic comedy or whatever, also just being exceptionally well crafted. Well. Uh, seems to rub against that. <laughs> it's also understanding, is it trying to be more than a romantic comedy? No. Don't, right. Don't expect it to be more than a romantic comedy. Like, Yeah, like not everything action. not everything is trying to be highest art. Right, and so that's like another thing you just have to like, you just have to look at like, what are you trying to be? Are you trying to do anything outside of norm? No, that's fine. Yeah. Or, are you doing within a norm exceptionally well? That's fine too, because... The amount of times, like, especially if you have a particular affinity for a genre film. Yeah. And you go see a genre film, and it's hitting all the stereotypical beats, but you don't care because it's hitting them so well. Hmm. That's also fine. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, I, I'm glad I'm I'm glad you always use Sidney LeMay as an example of this kind of thing, because every time I, I think of, like, God, there's so many movies that I love, like... 12 Angry Men, Network, like all like the, these ones that, again, are not necessarily like, bah, like jumping out at you movies, but like I could watch them just whenever well, like, I sit down and watch that movie. I'll say uh, on modern day Cindy LeMay, I may disagree, but I think Steven Spielberg, because he doesn't have, he has a style, but it's more of a hmm. feel and a tone, because when you watch Spielberg movies outside of a few things he always does, there is a, it's, hmm. unless you know a Spielberg. Like the only way you know it's Spielberg because like there's a certain like sort of movie magic quote unquote quality about yeah. it. I mean he's also he's made so many that there are little flourishes that people like hone in on, but not th- those aren't as obvious as I think we we sort of culturally uh I don't know sort of poke them for being. I I don't think they are either. You go see the post and then you see mm. Player One, and these these are two very different movies operating yeah. on two very different. Uh, brain brainwaves, and yeah, I think it's really people don't give uh, Spielberg credit enough for just like how, or or like or Lincoln, like yeah. this is like <laughs> just in the past like decade, like there's like Spielberg has shown that he can still make what the fuck ever. 
Sorry, well, I should. Uh, <laughs> well, no, no. Well, what I'm saying is like it's the fact that people I think don't give him credit for just like how sort of fearlessly he goes into genre yeah. without even a, like a second thought. And it's and it's not like yeah, they're, they're, and they're not like uh, I don't know. I, I yeah yeah they're 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 just very competently solidly done and often just exceptionally different genres. But they're not. They're, there's no like overcorrection where it has to be like. Oh, stylistically Spielbergian. Right. Well, uh, there's there's less well, of that than we think in a good way. I think so. Yeah. Um, I think also um, you should also, as well as understand the movie, you should also watch with a little bit of forgiveness in terms of the movie is failing because it depends mm. on how it's failing. If it's failing because it feels like it's not trying, okay, that you can get angry. But mm. if it's like doing something like unusual and it's still not hit, like it's still not working, then mm. you sort of almost said like because you have to understand like you see enough movies and like well most movies don't even try, <laughs> right. so you almost feel kind of bad or like um, I recently just had a review for um, the house for the house with the clock on its walls and mm. it's a kids movie but it's made like almost purely for kids and I'm just watching it like I wish I was a kid. <laughs> an adult is not doing much for me, but I can't imagine as a child it would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. Like the, I mean that that's an interesting position to be in as well. Just like being a, a critic watching a movie that is that is very consciously not made for you, not like in an exclusionary way, but just like this is made for someone else. Well, that's that I'm not, have, and isn't thing, it's. Hmm. That's another thing you have to do is just figure out: is this movie for me? Yeah. And if it's not for you, and if you are a critic, you have to say, I thought this movie isn't for me, and then still try to review it. But yeah. even as an audience member, you have to figure out, is this movie caring about what I think? <clears throat> and like, and then if it does, how is it going about it? Why is it going about it in that way? Um, and wh- what I'm asking for, and that's not for like deep critical thinking, but just trying to get to, like, movies aren't puzzles to be solved. Yeah, the stories to be listened to. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, the the um, and I I sort of I blame um my people for this. Uh, yes, I find nerds I think have uh, largely ruined the ability of anyone to ever enjoy movies again, and it's too late, and we can't escape it, and everything is awful forever. Uh, anyway, so no, uh, but like the I think the 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 central. Uh, culprit here I'm gonna say is is Star Wars and I love Star Wars <laughs> but but in terms of stuff on the internet the need that and again like I own Star Wars technical manuals uh, so I'm not like above this exactly <laughs> but like the need for everything to be connected in a giant wiki and to be treated like the universe is real. Uh, you know, I I enjoy a good uh, sci-fi movie. I enjoy every Star Wars movie that I care to uh, pay attention to, uh, aside from prequel ones, which can rot in hell. Uh, but uh, but like, not everything is trying to create a fantasy universe that is interconnected in that way. And really, even Star Wars isn't. Star Wars is attempting to make really good pulp movies, and that's kind of it, largely. Well, <laughs> like they don't have to be perfectly interconnected to us as viewers to be enjoyed, and the fact that that's become the default expectation 
it, like I don't I don't have a problem with people doing that to be clear. Like I like picking apart and obsessing over minutia and like looking at little easter egg then things and thinking about how the world fits together. But the problem to me is that that approach not just to Star Wars but in a lot of ways to to most movies uh as as now the default approach, you know, oh, does this all air quote make sense? Does it fit together is interminable and depressing and prevents enjoyment and engagement and uh and is terrible so yeah there we go that was that was a a happy back to what i was saying in terms of understanding the movie is it trying Mm -hmm. to be put me into contact with the other movies in the franchise or is it saying i don't all that stuff doesn't matter i'm just more concerned about yeah you know what you know what a great uh a, a great like sort of genre movie that that bucks this is what uh mad max fury road exactly like it is it is the the fourth movie in a series and it it just says ah, and shows you a great time <laughs> and 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 that's not to say that it's not within its own like presented fiction exceptionally like detailed like there's all sorts of world building within that movie itself Right. But it does not care where it fits within the broader, like, Mad Max extended universe. Like, it's, it just shows us this world and these characters and the best action that uh, is, has probably been committed to film and is wonderful. I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> um, uh, one of the things I think uh, that goes along with this is expecting everything to fit in with the interconnected universe. Part of this is because of plot holes. Oh, God. He said the word. I said the word. And if I say it two more times, they will appear. Uh, <laughs> oh, I was, I was going to go in like a, a Pee Wee Herman direction, but you went uh, with Beetlejuice. All right. It's too early for that, then. I'm also not going to scream into the microphone any more than I usually do. <laughs> Uh, but plot holes is a thing that it's not a new thing, but it's a new thing in terms for not liking a movie. Yeah. Um, now you can like a not like a movie and can also have plot holes, but not liking a movie because of plot holes depends again whether or not what the movie's trying to do. And I, I think uh, well, part part of this uh, th- there have been a few really good uh, YouTube videos sort of taking uh, plot hole obsession to task recently. And the, uh, the one that, that Patrick H. Willems did uh, asked, I think, the most important question, which is, what is a plot hole? And why should you care? Or should you care? And the answer that he comes down on very clearly is you shouldn't care. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the amount of times, like, whenever someone says, well, how did they get there? I'm like, well, how do you think they got there? Like, they got there because now, like, they traveled in a way that is not important to see is how they got there. What you are describing <laughs> is the French New Wave. And if you want to sit through a lot of that, good luck. There's a reason why a lot of, not a lot of people talk about it. Because there's a lot of just sitting and watching people do mundane things. I'm not saying I, mean, I don't it, love people in the French New Wave. I'm just saying... There was nobody response to that, and it was largely male, and there's a reason why no one talks about it as much anymore. <laughs> yeah, the French New Wave is not, a, is not an example of anything that the modern film goer actually wants. And I should also clarify, the French New Wave isn't really a movement so much as a particular generation of directors, but... Right, uh, uh, but yeah, like that... <laughs> I mean, I don't... The thing is, and maybe I'm uh, a bleak and hateful person... 
But I well, don't. Okay, well, that can be true. Uh, but I don't even think a lot of people who talk about plot holes care about plot holes. They just care about noticing things. Right. And it's like it's. They notice the inconsequential things. Yeah, it's like, yeah. I, and, and the thing about that, I think this goes. It's sort of parallel to what you were talking about before, like the, the ways you sort of train yourself to watch. Uh, as a as someone who's who's writing criticism, if you train yourself to look for particular categories of uh, there are heavy air quotes here. I don't know if you can hear my fingers waving in the microphone. Uh, plot holes, you will always find them. Oh yeah, it's impossible not to have a plot hole or two. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I mean, especially since that the, there's no like clear definition, and a lot of people just lump in things that aren't actual holes, but are just uh, filmmaking techniques or tropes. Uh, and yeah, like it's it's if if you obsess about plot holes, you will you will be watching a movie for plot holes, not for movie. Like over time, the more that you pay attention to something, the more you're going to look out for it. It's just how brains work, right? Well. <laughs> And one of the things with, like, I think a majority of the issue with plot holes isn't even the fact that the plot holes, but people just don't pay attention. Because mm. uh, there's a lot of times when I hear someone complain about a plot hole, like, that that was explained. Uh, that was, <laughs> there was a whole scene dedicated to explaining that. Maybe they went to use the bathroom, that's fine. Yeah. More than likely they were texting. More than likely maybe they just... Decided to check the phone for something because they got a little bit bored doing the movie, and then they came back and they didn't know what was going on. Or, or, maybe they, or just... they just forgot. Right. Like it, <laughs> it could be any number of things. But yeah, no, just not I'll, keeping in mind when you watch a movie, you really do have to pay attention. <laughs> so now, some movies you can just turn your head off because, when, like, when you watch an Arnold Schwarzenegger that's a Stallone action movie. <laughs> You don't yeah. go in thinking like, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, of course it doesn't. When you pick up the Stallone or Schwarzenegger movie, you won't well, really that... want any logical sense. And if you were, you're an idiot, and you shouldn't be allowed to touch movies. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, if if we wanted to, to, to be... It, it, the whole world could be, like, terrific plot hole pedants. Uh, all you have to do is go to any action movie and say, well, that's not how that gun works. Or the human <laughs> body can't do that. And you would you would probably be right, uh, <laughs> but you and nothing, fun. yeah, and nothing of value will have been added. Like you will have done, you will have done nothing except probably ruin someone else's time by being the person who's like, well, I know that Schwarzenegger is strong, but I don't think he could actually do that. Oh, he could pick up a phone booth. I've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think also there's a thing where like movies aren't real. <laughs> how and dare I, I, you how know, dare you like, sir say that because I'm like almost unlike any other form of art um, <laughs> you watch sit down and watch a movie and there's sort of this bizarre expectation of a veracity of truth that's going to be in it yeah and, like, and I mean he, outside uh, of maybe Selma most movies <laughs> about true events are a lot of lies with some basic truth in them and yeah. we like that too. There's a lot of lying going in to get a, maybe a few kernels of truth. Well, I mean, even even uh, I like the fact that you used veracity because e- the, even in uh, creative writing, we don't aim for veracity. We aim for verisimilitude, which right. isn't truth. It's 
seeming like truth. Well, and, and that's, that's what, an important distinction. And that's what most movies are, seeming like truth. What, what you react to nine times out of ten is a moment, a small moment that is very true. Yeah. But it's mixed in with a lot of other moments that really aren't true. But I mean... I mean, qu- quite honestly, I, I feel like that distinction is super important, and a lot of people either willfully or accidentally miss it. Yeah. Like, the the worst outcome of not realizing that movies aren't real to me of late, well, I, I won't say the worst, but one of the worst and one of the most consistent seems to be when people will make arguments against, like, people of color being shown like as soldiers in particular periods is one that pops up a lot in the angry parts of Twitter uh, or the internet or wherever, because previous movies have conditioned people to think like, Oh, well like Southeast Asian people weren't fighting in the British army in world war two. Well, you should, you should, the, that should be what all these movies look like, but they don't, they don't think about the fact that like, you're just learning that from other movies. You haven't checked that against history. And if you did, you would find out you were wrong. <laughs> well, perfect Wait, example. Um, going back to the house with a clock on its walls. It takes, yeah. place, it takes place in 1955. Mm. And yet the kids at the uh, kids' uh, middle school or high school, I think it's middle school, maybe even elementary school, not the point. Mm. Has an incredibly diverse <laughs> cast. Oh, well, that's that's ridiculous. Black people didn't exist before 1960. <laughs> uh, well, when, I, when you watch it, and at first I'm like, well, this is a little bit, and that, what am I talking about? It's a kid's movie. Yeah. <laughs> and like, and that's the thing. Of, well, that's not, no, oh, it's a kid's movie, and B, he's not interested in talking that. He's just showing, look at all these kids. Yeah. Well, so so again, it goes back to like, what is this movie trying to do? Is this movie attempting to put forward a completely accurate historical picture? Uh, also, second, like, do you as a viewer have a completely accurate historical right. picture in your brain? Uh, and if the answer to both of those questions is no, which it almost always is, then maybe you're asking the wrong question. <laughs> now, because um, a sudden, uh, perfect example of uh, plot holes, the m- large majority of World War Two. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, movies tend to leave out a very glaring uh, portion of what happened in that time period, and that is the whole purpose of the war. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? The war, the, the purpose of the war was to defeat capital E evil and for the West, capital T, capital W, to triumph over capital E evil. Wasn't that, was that not... Was that not what that was about? Now, if you watch a, a World War II movie that's made, like, say, in the midst of or at the beginning of World War II, that's a little uh, bit forgiving because they didn't really know. They just knew. Right. Like, history, it hadn't become history. It was just what was happening. Right. But if it's post-World War II, and if it's, like, mm. say, in the 60s, well, then you have to sort of be like, okay, what is this movie trying to do? Yeah. <laughs> and also, wh- why would it leave out that very, very basic concept? Yeah. <laughs> Part of the reason is, quite simply, because then you have to address something much deeper than most war, war, post-World War II movies really want to be. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that's that's another like critical perspective to, to keep in mind, is, is considering like what was going on when a movie came out, uh, uh, which can tell you a lot about, like, well, what are they, what are they aiming for? What are they leaving out? Right. Um, like, uh, and I, I don't know, I, I do... I worry because I am an old man 
uh, about how much people like watch older movies, especially with the constant glut of new movies and the fact that a lot of older like you know, classic movies, let's say, uh, don't the, the they're not as prominent in the the most popular streaming services. A lot of the like you know important uh, serious film films tend to be in like other sort of niche streaming services, and that's that's a little troubling, but different conversation i suppose it is uh but at the same time like i wish more people would watch classic movies uh well yeah because i mean it's also it's also part of like part of learning to read movies is seeing like the sort of how things have changed over time same reason we read older books to like see where like what certain storytelling patterns used to be and what they've become and and like understanding that lineage a little better well not only that but i'm sorry um movie lore i think it's an auto pimager movie Mm. Um, it's fantastic because it's a murder mystery that halfway through the movie it turns out <laughs> the the victim isn't even dead. <laughs> Always a good twist. One of the best. Especially because the whole time they're talking about the course with the shotgun blast to his face is a perfectly reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic, by the way, if you guys haven't seen Laura. It's amazing. Um, it's a nice little pump to see before you see a simple favor. Um... There is also like when you there's an old Billy Wilder movie called Double Indemnity. Oh yeah, and also a, also a, a great book, but that's separate. Yeah, uh, James M. Cain, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Um, there's a moment in Double Indemnity that is the modern day movie audiences would jump on because even at the time, film fanatics were like, "Hey, that's not a thing." And th- mm. there's a moment in Double Indemnity where Fred McMurray is hiding behind a door. Hmm. And the door opens, and he's inside. And he's hiding behind it. <laughs> and the complaint was, that's not how doors open. Actually, no, no, no. He was hiding outside in the hallway, and the door opened out. <laughs> and they're like, that's not realistic. And Billy Waters like, I don't care. Like, it works for the shot. It works like... for the shot, and for the intensity of the moment and everything. Not really something I've had. How doors work is not really a concern of most directors. And I, I, I wonder uh, how uh, I don't know the 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 that like need for or expectation for I suppose it's not a real need for for a particular kind of realism is interesting because when I look at like different theater traditions around the world, for example. Like there, there are places where, like, uh, the, especially at least in the the sort of British uh, the- theatrical tradition, there's a there there's a lot more like realistic air quote staging, let's say, as opposed right. to in certain types of let's say like East Asian theater, will have a lot more like abstract things, or there will be like people on stage who who aren't characters but just like move things, right? Uh, and like that that sort of divide to me is interesting because I I it. it I think a lot of that will also influences like people's expectations for like later forms of art. You can sort of see that trajectory of like, no, like we're this should this should mirror real life to as much a degree as possible. It's well, like, well, well, why? What if it's not trying to? This I think also speaks into another issue people have is uh, part of understanding a movie is hmm. sort of readjusting your inner barometer. Yeah, because when you sit down and say when you watch a Herzog movie or say a Wong Kar Wai movie. Mm. or even a Robert Altman movie, these are movies that aren't... They're going to follow their own rhythms. And so you sort of have to, like, 
get into like that particular movie's rhythms and mm. beats. Because you go see a Marvel movie and you go to a DC movie, you don't have to really do a lot of adjusting the comic book movies. Yeah, the, the movie comes to you. Right. But when you see a movie from a different country, you almost a lot of times will have to readjust because they don't have a Hollywood. Right. Unless it's Although, like a Hong Kong action movie. But even then, that's going to be different because that isn't even like Hollywood. That's a Hong Kong movie pinnacle. Although some of those, like, I, I feel like there's... Uh, Hong Kong action movies, I think there's probably less adjustment required anymore. Maybe maybe more now. Like, I feel like it's been a while since a, a Hong Kong movie has sort of broken big in America. Why? Well, but but like when for, you go, but whenever you go to, like, another country, you tend to look at... You start off looking at movies that are big here, but then you start looking at movies that were big there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so by doing that, you just sort of have to start figuring out how that culture works and how that culture works via movies and you don't really you can do some reading but a lot of it is just mm. looking at the movies and see how they do it like yeah said, like um well you mentioned about them helping move things on set that's a japanese i believe right japanese yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and then when you watch japanese uh especially like japanese film that is based in uh kabuki mm-hmm. like you really yes. have to <laughs> like it requires you to sit back this this is highly melodramatic and pitched at a very fever pitch yeah 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 and i mean that's that's one of those even like you know in in like uh english speaking circles like melodrama is is usually a word that is is negative like but that doesn't that's not automatically the case like there like there are plenty of of sort of theatrical and and dramatic traditions where melodrama is just what that's what uh, if not the standard a common standard is right like it's okay and it's actually what some people are going for. Um, well, also, melodrama uh, is a perfect way to figure also, out how... So oh, no, good. Oh, I was going to say, also, like, comic book movies are, are basically straight melodrama. We just pretend they aren't. Oh, yeah, <laughs> no, they, they are straight-up dude-bro melodrama. Uh, <laughs> like, comic books Comic books are, are soap operas. It's wonderful. Just, it, just own it. <laughs> melodramas are the perfect way to smuggle in subtext. Yeah. In fact, many directors have used big mainstream melodramas to smuggle in subtext in front of the audience. Mm. Uh, we saw it with Thor Ragnarok a little too well. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You see it in Black Panther. You see it in, like, even Wonder Woman. It's the fact that if you if you have a large enough audience, there's no reason why you can't start sneaking in things. And the mm. thing about subtext is it's not always going to be obvious. Yeah. Um. A lot of times, um, although sometimes it's only barely subtext. Well, a lot of times it's something that's <laughs> as simple as casting an actor for a certain reason. Yeah, uh, Douglas Sirk often cast Rock Hudson in his movies, and he made these sort of like romantic melodramas. And mm. he knew that Rock Hudson was gay, and yeah. for him that was part of the joke of the <laughs> right. paragon of American masculinity and heteronormativity. It's like, it's not even what you... Th- it's uh, So, like, you guys don't know anything. You, you're just spewing <laughs> nonsense. And... Right. And, and that's something that's, like, that's funny to him, but that's not something that we became aware of until, like, decades later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like, the... I mean, even even just watching movies, uh, like you'll miss a lot because some things happen between the lines. Some things happen like in just the the history of the people making them. 
Like there's, there's a reason why there are a lot of books about different like filmmakers. <laughs> there is, um, I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, Sydney LeMay, Prince in the City. Mm. Uh, watching the movie. Um, at the beginning of the movie, all the sets are set in, like, in warehouses or uh, squad rooms. And the mm. background is sparse. Like there's not a lot of stuff in the back. Like mm-hmm. maybe a bookshelf or maybe the wall's just blank. And as the movie goes on, the scenes would take place in certain scenarios where the background becomes a little bit more cluttered, has something going on. Hmm. And by the end, it's taking place in, like, lawyers' offices, um, inner chambers or courtrooms, and you have all these books and everything. It's, and it's like, they, increasingly cluttered. Right, and that's basically Lamette. Uh, he even said in the behind-the-scenes interviews, like, I was trying to give you, like, the viewer a sort of visual idea of, how he went from because Prince of the City is about a cop who turns and it becomes an informant on dirty cops, mm. and so basically it's like how he goes from a black and white morality into his mores become more complicated, mm. and that's something you don't notice the first time through, or possibly even the second time through, because as he will say, if you notice it, I'm not doing my job. Yeah, like and, it's it's not necessarily it's not meant to immediately like check a particular box it's it's attempting to visually build like a mood that reflects what's happening with the characters and that is i think what is getting lost in a lot of what the modern day movie audience is so much of movies are giving you visual cues yeah visual like it's information and whether you think it's throwaway or not they are they put that there for a reason it's like visual shorthand versus uh like a broader attempt at a at using visuals to build, like, theme and character in the background. Exactly. Um, I just lost it. I'll come back to it when I think of it again. Uh, <laughs> part of it, I think, is you used to working on film, act, using actual film. You had to edit mm. it much more carefully, so you had to pay attention to what was on the screen much more carefully. Yeah. The, I mean, not, not to be, like, money. not to be... Yeah, not to be, like, anti-digital people, but, like, uh, one of the things I find consistently true with uh, writing, at least, and from what I see, it tends to to transfer well, is the more freedom you have encourages, like, or at least incentivizes certain kinds of uh, laziness. Right. Uh, which it, which doesn't doesn't require it. It doesn't automatically cause it. But if you have like a very hard limit in what you can accomplish, in this case with like the amount of film stock you have, then you have to be you have to be focused. You have to be careful. You have to be precise. Right. Uh, and if you have the uh, but whereas with digital, if you have essentially you can shoot as much as you have storage space for. Uh, which is a lot less limited, not unlimited, but a lot less limiting than film, uh, you can be a lot safer. And that's not always a good thing. Well, not only that, but also, like, when using film stock, you would actually have to cut. And yeah. Just you have to cut over. and put things together. And, but yeah. Was a digital, you can just keep rolling. Like, yeah. you can easily edit that on. Like, you'll just, like, they'll, they'll yell. And cut, again, but like- the footage will just keep rolling and they'll start over and. And because you can just keep moving the camera, mm. there's really no need to worry about, oh, we have to redo that shot again. Mm. Framing a shot in a certain way is becomes less important. Yeah, because it's, it's, not, it's not as much of a risk. Like, it's not, we have this much film, we need to make the, like, these visual things really hit. 
and we can only do it within this many feet of film. <laughs> well, there's a YouTube video um, by Shooting Down Pictures, I believe, or I know mm. I think it's Every Fame of Painting, Every Fame of Painting, mm. and it's about the Spielberg Wanna. Oh and, yeah, yeah. And he makes a very good point. Is like Spielberg does like a one a tracking shot, which course is famously in Scorsese's Goodfellas to when they go into the Copacabana. And mm. now it's basically a what filmmakers do to show off just how good they are. Well, they just mm. filmmakers nowadays love doing it. But back in the day, that's just what you did as a way to move from one part of the scene to the other without having to worry about cutting. And with also by giving you a little bit of visual exposition, it was basically a shortcut and an actual tool you use in your toolbox. Now mm. it's as something you do just to show people you can. And you're trying yeah. to go for as long as possible. And I mean, it, it also, to, to, the the switch to digital isn't necessarily all bad. It's just there are certain co- frequent consequences. Like, it's also great that not having to, to buy physical film stock uh, ma- lets a lot more people make movies. Yeah. And not all of them are going to not respect like particular visual approaches sorry i just i realized i was really bagging on digital and i didn't want to be that guy completely but well, um, I'm, I'm not gonna lie a digital <laughs> film kind of looks ugly to me but that's just me yeah I, I mean there I, are I'm things there, there are things that can be done about that but it's never gonna be perfect yeah yeah no no it's one of the things where like there's a the clarity of it and everything i'm like it looks nice but you've also again it's not supposed to be true like clarity clarity isn't necessarily a good thing like i i don't uh, you know i i like a good 30 frames per second i i don't need like <laughs> super fancy sharp high def things i like a dreamlike quality of film like that's right. well again and, and again just, i lo- just i like it because that's term. what i've always seen so you just brought up an excellent term dreamlike most films yeah. um when you watch a movie you also have to figure out is it trying to be like a realistic set of events or is it trying to be dreamlike much mm. like inception the dreamlike mm. quality means you're not going to get the concrete answers you normally get. And it also means plot holes are going to be much more suspect because, again, it's mm-hmm. a dream. A uh, perfect example, Night of the Hunter is mm. uh, is a gothic tale, but it's also very dreamlike. And once you start looking at it, because like, if you look at it just as a movie, there's a lot of plot holes, quote-unquote, and the logic sort of fails. Like, the kid can easily outrun him, but it's a dream and it's a kid, so no. Because mm. in dreams, you often can't outrun things that are easily outrun. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah, just the, oh, how did the killer catch up? Because the because... otherwise the movie stops. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> Rule number one, if the question is, a lot of times the question is simply because then we don't have a movie. That's a very good answer, by the way. <laughs> yeah, because because then we don't have a movie is... is uh... Uh, a good answer to keep in mind for a lot of things. Now, like it, that doesn't mean the movies can't have problems and that that, that all problems should be ignored. But no. some problems should be ignored, some <laughs> or at aren't least even problems, or at least only kept to private, like dorky conversations between friends, and not like broadcasted out into the world as though this is the way that the movie is supposed to be watched. <laughs> Pretty much. I'm looking at I'm looking at you, most of YouTube. <laughs> Even though also a lot of my favorite film like discussions are, are also happening on YouTube. So also sometimes you're okay. Got my eye on you, YouTube. <laughs> Keep it in line. So in conclusion, there's more than one way to watch a movie. <laughs> yeah, and you can definitely do it wrong, and we can't because we are great. 
Uh, oh no no I see I watch movies long all the time. Yeah yeah no me too. <laughs> um, I would recommend reading and I, not even me don't read me read actual thumb criticism. <laughs> no dude read Jeremiah's Jeremiah's are good. Uh, read Ebert Pauline Kael uh, Amy Nicholson. Uh, and again don't don't read them as fonts of truth. Right. Read, read them as perspectives to to keep in mind, and for the things that they will will help you notice about like patterns in film. You don't have to agree, don't have to disagree, but read good criticism, and it will help hone your eye for film. Um, uh, quite frankly, um, before I became a critic, I almost never would read a review for a movie that I was going to see. Hmm. But you also, you are also someone who's like, oh, I'm going to see, you know, this and that. But like, what I would see, like, I would read enough of the review to get, like, what they felt about it. And yeah. then I would see the movie, and then I would come back. Or sometimes we would see a movie, and I just didn't read the reviews. Oh, and man, there's some... be so heartbroken that Eba didn't love Death to Smooshies. <laughs> there, there's something that we didn't talk about, but yeah, like, not... you Critics, uh, film criticism isn't necessarily meant to be read before you see a movie. No, it's not. Like, see a movie or dislike it, like, read reviews after and then think, like, oh, you know, like, did you notice the same things? Like, what different perspectives are leading to different conclusions? Like, it's it's not a, it's not a, an argument. It's just a conversation. Like, right. Well, like, Cisco and Ebert, the show, was meant to be watched before seeing the movie. Yeah. But yeah, reviews uh, themselves largely are meant to be read after like there are different types of reviews or reviews like long form and then you have stuff like little YouTube videos where they review the movie they tell you whether or not to see it stream it or scream it or whatever yeah. scream it is what I do when I see a bad movie um, <laughs> but, and that's something you watch before you see the movie because that's someone that you know and trust who's telling you whether or not to spend your time or your money yeah uh, you know, don't don't see critics. Uh, not all critics are the same thing. They're not all doing the same kind of criticism. Uh, and that's good. That's how it should be. Critical thinking also applies to how, the criticism you take in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not just critical thinking about movies, but critical thinking about criticism of movies. <laughs> um. So that's all we have for now. All the time we have for now. Um. Mm. That's we'll probably come back to this because it's a topic I truly love and adore. Because I think we also need oh, yeah. to talk about um. When it's okay, like I think a lot of people don't understand that you can have more than one tone in your movie. I know we've talked about this before, but it's still a thing mm. that bugs me. It it turns out there are there are at least three, maybe more ways to make a movie. Well, no, uh. okay, perfect example. Before we leave, I was I saw Miller's Crossing on the big screen, which was oh god, it was so good. Oh, and one movie. one of my coworkers was there, and afterwards I was like, "How'd you like it?" It's like it was pretty good. I'm like, "Had you seen it before?" It's like, "No, I hadn't." I, I was like, so you, you really enjoyed it? It's like I did. There were a couple of points that I kind of wanted to laugh, though. It was kind of over the top. No, and it's. I like, <laughs> and I said, you're supposed to. And he goes, really? I was like, okay. See, and this idea of having this guy. Um, I'd like to introduce you to the Cohen brothers. Um. <laughs> Don't forget to check out on a, uh, other podcasts on the Fundamentals Unabashed Bush Snobbery, Ladies First, The Fundamentals. Uh, we also have the new Fundamentals Plus podcast that happens, I believe, every once in a while. So also read love. Jeremiah's read Jeremiah's articles too. Um, don't, don't listen to him, but but do. <laughs> if you are a Fundamental Plus member, we have those going on. Um, so outside of that, thank you for listening. Uh, talk to you guys next time. Say goodbye, Thad. 
Bye.